0: It's global in its reach. uh, It's deadly in its capabilities. It's organized in its structure. It's financially driven. It is hugely profitable. So they've become um, like persistent weeds in a a garden. They've long, deep deep roots. They've been there for a long time. The Kinahans will be arrested. They will be caught. They will be detected.
1: I'm Nicola Talent and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. The US sanctions on the Kinnahan organized crime group and the 5 million dollar awards for the capture of the dapper don Christy Kinnahan senior and his criminal sons Daniel and Christopher junior has been the peak point in the fight by law enforcement against their global cartel. But how do police try to take down a mafia? And what does the involvement of the powerful United States actually mean? How will a piece of legislation passed by Barack Obama in 2011 actually affect the billion dollar empire of the Kinahans? Today, I'm talking to Roy McComb, the one-time head of organised crime for the PSNI in Northern Ireland and the former deputy director at the National Crime Agency in the UK. He tells me how police face down the monster of an international drug cartel like the Kinnahans and he reveals how they came into the sights of the US authorities in the first place. We discuss their growth from the streets of Dublin into a trans-global organisation, now affecting the stability of the all-powerful dollar. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Roy, your background um, as regards organised crime. Just give us a little bit of an idea about your career to date and why you are an authority really on what is going on at the moment within the Kinnahan organisation.
0: Uh, so I spent the first 30 years of my professional life in the police in Northern Ireland and finished as the head of organised crime. I spent the latter part, maybe the last 10 years or so, working in the field of organised crime. Most of my life has been involved in investigating major crime, whether it's homicide, terrorism, and more recently then organised crime. And in 2014, I joined the UK's National Crime Agency as a deputy director uh, with national responsibilities of of various types over the five-year period that I worked there. Um, And then more recently, since 2019, I've been working as an international consultant in the world of organized crime, um, working for different organizations around the world uh, against different crime threats such as, uh, you know, the the drugs threat at this point or modern slavery, human trafficking, um, all all types of activities that fall under that umbrella of serious organised crime.
1: So and over the course of your own career, um, you know, that organised crime, even the term, has changed so vastly, hasn't it? Because while initially, I suppose, in the last few decades, we might have seen it as being a, a... you know, there was organised crime groups who were largely operating, maybe say from here, between here and the UK. Now they're not only operating across Europe, but they're, they have reached far out globally um, into territories never before used.
0: Yes, it's, and it's, <clears throat> I mean, it, it, it's global in its reach. Uh, it's deadly in its capabilities. It's organised in its structure. It's financially driven. Uh, it is hugely profitable uh, and I think the global sense of organized crime, if you were to bring it together and consider it one entity, it would probably be in the top five global countries in terms of, of national products. So if you were to wrap it all up and call it a country, then it would be in the sort of top five, top six of the GDPs of, of the global, of the, of the countries in the world. So the US, China, the UK, all of that, organised crime would be knocking on the door of, of those so that's how big it is uh, the scale of it's phenomenal you know half a million people a year die because of drugs overdose or linked into drugs half a million people uh, and, and you know it's that's, that's a viral type of pandemic of a sort and and it's it's motivated largely by the profit motive. So, um, you know, of course, it's a it's a global reach, a global phenomena. The 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 modernisation of the world due to the internet and the ability of people to connect relatively easy, as as we're doing on this call, um, <clears throat> allows criminals to 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 use that to best advantage, oftentimes quicker than than um, law enforcement or governments can catch up on them. So, I mean, it is properly a global threat. And uh, Ireland and the UK is certainly not immune from that threat.
1: So did something happen around the beginning of sort of in and around, say, 2010, that decade going forward to 2020, that, you know, was almost like a gold rush for crime groups within Europe? They appear to have realised that merging together was going to be something that was going to be a huge financial boost to them, using all their contacts, bringing together all their... Specialities, be it in laundering, in assassination, whatever it was they had, and that period of time seems to me looking at it from the outside a total golden era of it
0: yeah, I think the the, the globalization of Uh, industrial activity around the world has simply been a facilitator for organised crime who ran on the back of it, the ability to open up markets, the ability to to move more freely amongst the, uh, even within Europe, using the sort of Schengen movement, or, or globally the ability to move, to transport information, transport finance, to move people, to move product uh, all of that was simply a facilitator, uh, an inadvertent uh, dilemma that, that the world's sort of globalisation approach took. I mean, it's somewhat akin to the, uh, you know, when the U.S. Uh, reorganised, and, and I'm talking about the U.S. criminal fraternity, reorganised itself under what was called then the Commission, uh, you know, back in the, the 20th century, the early part of the 20th century, when they, when they recognised that there was huge amounts of money to be made, but that it could be organised and structured better, and I'm not suggesting that there was a formal get-together, but in the U.S. certainly there was a formal get-together and, you know, the family structure was organised and the demarcation of area's responsibility. Uh, we haven't quite got to that. We don't have that level of of um, structure, but there's clear global reach. I mean, there are organised crime groups such as the Kinahans that are, you know, very much at the top of their game in terms of the international threat uh, and... You know that's that's quite an interesting phenomenon for such a relatively small country as Ireland to develop such a dangerous and difficult organised crime groups such as the Kennedys for the threat that they pose. Uh, they really have stepped up. Up the up the ladder, so you know globalization has facilitated the the the, the rapid development of organised crime to be able to organise criminal threats from one side of the world that impact on the other. You know, you can move money in the click of a few buttons. You can move people. Uh, from one part of the world to another by a couple of keystrokes, by organising flights and ferry crossings. It's relatively simple to do if you're motivated. And of course, the profit margin is just enormous and people are motivated by that profit margin.
1: And looking at the Kinehans and some of the key figures in that group, we can recognise that at the turn of the century, they were some of them, many of them street dealers here in Dublin, and they have risen up those ranks so quickly within those 10, 20 years that... um, you know, they have become this massive threat to the structures of society, basically. Um, And focusing in on the Kinnahans, because there's so many organised crime groups across the world and even within Europe. But to focus on them and the reason we're talking today is to try and understand the policing approach to them, because... Initially in 2010, um, Europol coordinated Operation Shovel, which the Spanish headed up and the UK were involved in and the Irish and other territories like Belgium. Um, And that was very much supposed to be the takedown of the group. They were arrested, brought before the courts. They very quickly got bail and they very quickly got up and running again for plenty of reasons. but which we will park for the moment. So we move on to 2016 and the Regency Hotel event happens, uh, which clearly is a kind of a, a moment of terrorism in Dublin in, in a European capital. Broad daylight and the weaponry, etc. used in that certainly woke up the government here to the threat of the Kinahan organisation. But there was other things happening within Europe as they were merging with other groups as well that were waking up other um Polices, policing um, organizations in in outside of Ireland to the threat of them. So when police sit down, let's take twenty sixteen as our starting point, and they look at how they are going to try and dismantle the organization. Where do you start, and you know how do you devise a plan? Uh, well, it, it, you're right in the twenty sixteen in terms of the Kennan's
0: identified in the sharpest possible manner the threat that they were posing. Uh, The audacity and and the sheer violence that they were prepared to bring to the streets of Dublin at the Regency Hotel uh, made it impossible for anybody to to sort of push them to the side and say that they're just an ordinary street crime. They presented themselves as a threat to the democratic state uh, and action was absolutely necessary. And and to a large extent, the most serious organized crime groups do exactly that. And that's why there is a need for that coordinated national stroke international action, because they they pose a threat to democratic structures, they pose a threat to the justice system, they pose a threat to the economic safety of, of countries, and, and you know they are properly to be managed as a national security threat, which is what the Irish have done in in focusing on the Canadians because recognising what they do. And that's the first step in tackling an organised crime gang of this nature. First of all, understanding the nature and the scale of the threat that they pose. So you start off by understanding, well, who are they? What do we know about them? What's the nature of the threat that they pose? Are they linear in terms of dealing with one commodity or are they multi-talented in terms of dealing with types of criminality beyond just drugs? But do they do firearms? Do they do human trafficking? Do they do, uh, you know, guns for higher murder? What's the level of the threat we're dealing with? You have to understand your horizons, uh, then the scale and the challenge of what it is. Then you have to understand, well, what do we know about them? Um, you know, who are the individuals? Do we understand their structures, their power bases? Do we understand the way that they interact one with each other internally? What's their relationship with other people externally? So it's well known the, 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 the threat that the Kennehan's pose to the Hutch group and vice versa. So that's a, a contextual information that law enforcement had to understand. And then you have to understand the international reach. You know, is this a... a we talk about a tier one threat uh, all the way to a tier three threat. Tier three would be that international threat Global threat that um, you know that that the Kennehan's and others properly are, and and all of that feeds into the well. What do we know? Well, then you have to move into well. What are our objectives? Well, the objectives are always, uh, in, in a gang like this to prevent the loss of life first of all, and and obviously after twenty sixteen, that becomes even more important because they've shown a capability and an intent and a willingness to to take life. Um, pretty much under the nose of law enforcement in, in Dublin and that's a, that's a real insult to law enforcement and you know if you're in that position in law enforcement you feel very personally aggrieved that this happened on your watch and you'll be very motivated to do something to about, about them and, and to to tackle them and to bring them to justice so you got to prevent the loss of life you try to first of all develop your understanding of the vulnerabilities of this group, where can you tackle them what are their weak points, what are their pinch points that they are vulnerable in then you have to muster your own capabilities, you know, can you do this as an individual organisation or must this be a multinational response and all of that takes time to pull together, particularly when you're dealing with an international response. You have to deal with, you know, jurisdictional issues, legal issues, you have to deal with relationships, trust issues uh, and all of that needs pulled together. So. Crime and criminals, particular, and, and organised crime particularly, will always have the advantage of being able to move faster, being able to move past the, the rules and regulations of decent society. Law enforcement will always move that bit slower, but I think the, the last 10 or 15 years has shown law enforcement can begin to move that bit faster when the scale and the threat of an organised crime group like the Kennens is probably recognised and seen to be a threat Not just to Ireland, but also to the UK and to further afield. And when it seemed to be a collective threat to decent society, organisations can begin to move quite quickly. And and as we've seen, I think in the last 12, 18 months, can be really very effective against groups like the Kenyans. But it's a perpetual thing. You have to keep that moving, you have to consistently challenge what you know about the organisation, you have to have clear command and control. You have to have clarity about who and which organisation is doing what. Coordination of activity is critical. Sharing of information, sensitive information particularly, is critical. And and those trust issues between organisations don't happen overnight. They are built up over time. You know, you can pass legislation that enables you know, the UK and Ireland to pass information to each other, but you still bring it down to individual and corporate trust between organisations and I think what the Kinnaghan activity has shown uh, is that that trust is there between certainly the UK and the, and, and the Irish authorities and more recently into the Middle East and, and the US. So uh, it, it's a multi-layered approach, Nicola. There's no one magic bullet. It's, it's, it's built in complexity, requires a complex and, and a multi-layered approach to, to properly take down a group like the Kinnaghan's.
1: So it's probably while in the beginning we spoke about this five year plan, you're probably more likely looking at a 10 year plan. And in particular with the Kinnahans, a lot of delays were caused by the COVID situation um, and all that was going on with that. But when they initially sat down, they would have been looking at the immediate problem of the murders that were happening on the streets and the threat to civilians. And they needed to get on top of that sort of nationally. But at the same time, we were having a situation where politically there was, you know, higher management structures within the Garda Síochana and within our government were reaching out and, and making friends as such with partners in other countries where they were operating. And um, it has to be, Roy, surely that, you know, at a particular point in time like that, you can be lucky or unlucky by the people in the jobs. And having the right people in the jobs, you know, must make a difference.
0: I, I think there's an element of that, certainly, that, you know, a, a, an organisation is led by individuals and and can be shaped by the way that individuals take forward the the approach against any given crime threat. Um, and and organisations, in like the police particularly, often have very clear, very broad strategic approaches and, and they can be at times a little bit rigid and, and of course when you deal with a threat such as the Kinehans and the Regency Hotel brought it into sharp focus that you know this wasn't a problem that could be slowly approached, it had to have an immediacy to that first human rights protection issue of stopping people being killed on the streets of Dublin and further afield. But you do have to then build in that long, longer-term um, strategy that is going to unpick the different levels of an organised crime group. I mean, the Kennens didn't pop up in 2016. You know, they were active for a long time. And so they've become um, like persistent weeds in a, in a, in a, in a garden. They've long, deep, deep roots. They've been there for a long time. They have, a, uh, in some areas, a sort of a popular support but and they draw that support when they need to. Uh, taking your time to unpick the entirety of an organisation uh, is what is required. You don't do that overnight. But there was absolutely a need to 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 have a robust immediate response to deal with the threat that was on the street in 2016, which I think happened. Albeit that there were still a number of murders have a to the to the feud at that time for for a period of time. Uh, but you know, from the experience in Northern Ireland, when we had feuds in in, in in loyalist and occasionally republican paramilitary groups, you know, wrapping your arms around that and preventing the next murder. Uh, you know, it takes a huge amount of effort to do, and um, you know, you cannot have police on every street corner. There just aren't enough police officers to do that. But you do need to show a very robust response and to show that the, the behaviour in 2016 just, you know, it's just not acceptable, not, not allowed.
1: You have to make people feel safe again on the streets. And I think there was a lot of terror um, with the reaction to the Kinahan mob to that, um, you know, threat to them at the Regency. There was a lot of. Daylight murders happening, and there was just generally a feeling that they were untouchable. They were out of control and that the guards hadn't got the control. um, And I suppose they needed to reassure the public in that way. Now, that end of it has definitely I mean, it's undisputable, but that happened. And the the threat quelled while it's still recognised as being there. Thankfully, we're not seeing the frequency of such murders, etc. And there's a lot of people behind bars in this country who were associated with senior members of and working for the Kinahan organization. But in the bigger investigation, which has involved the, that international cooperation we've spoken about, that seems to me to be unprecedented, that the cooperation that is now existing between the countries of Europe and beyond is this a new wave of policing? And what happened that, you know, made all those sort of countries become friends and start to trust one another?
0: Uh, well, I think there was always a level of trust. Uh, you know, from somebody who worked in Northern Ireland, our relationship with the Garda was was first-rate. But it, it, there were always technical issues that we had to get over the, you know, the legal issues, jurisdictional issues, and that requ- required pretty much a constant management of the relationships between the, those of us in the North and colleagues in the South. So um, the relationship then East-West was probably something that needed to be built on. And I think, ironically, the Kinnahans, through their actions in 2016, and then the activities in 2017, when they were clearly seen to be managing uh, the UK element of their global network uh, within 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 England, posed a threat to... Uh, or pose a threat to to good peace and justice in, in, in England. And so the recognition of the fact this wasn't just an Irish problem, this was also a British problem, uh, brought it home that the UK needed to be playing its part in tackling what it could within the UK, within the GB side of um, the, the Kennahan gang. Uh, and, and that's what you essentially need. So when you pose a, a threat to more than one country, if each of those countries recognises the threat to that country, then the chances are more likely that they will um, cooperate with each other. And so I think the actions of 16 and then 2017, the events of 2017 when, you know, when firearms were detected in, in England that were part of the Kennehan group, it was clear then that the Kennehan's represented not just a threat within Ireland, but a threat within the United Kingdom. And that made it Relatively easy to persuade British authorities to get involved and to and to form part of this, uh, the sort of task force approach of tackling
1: this threat because it represented a um, an all Ireland an all island approach an all Ireland threat. That of course focused on Thomas Bomber Kavanaugh and his operation, which was centered in Birmingham and the um importation of massive amounts of drugs and weapons into the country and onwards, some of it to Ireland, but also it was it was uh being pushed out across the UK. Um and that definitely we could see the results of that because only recently Kavanaugh and his cohorts have been jailed and we did uh, our own uh, three-part podcast on how that happened and what was going on around that. But onwards to Europe then, and, you know, there has been a lot of cooperation between the Spanish. They seem to have stepped up their act. I mean, that's just as a lay observer that I am. But the Spanish seem to, you know, the co- that Costa del Sol has undoubtedly been the place of choice for criminals for lots of reasons, but one of them to me seems to be that the Spanish system doesn't seem to be robust enough to handle organised crime. And there does seem to be, you know, a lot of chitter-chatter out of the underworld about the amount of times you can get off by throwing a few bob at a cop.
0: So, well, actually, I take a view that the Spanish are... Relatively well structured. The, the um, one of my my sort of pet interests is that crossover between organized crime and terrorism, and and the events that happened the the, the bombings in Madrid Airport a number of years ago, um, when the investigation unraveled not just a very strong terrorist plot but an overlap between organized crime uh, and particularly the funding of terrorism through organized crime. So. The, the Spanish, particularly at the, the Guard of Seville, have created that multi-jurisdictional capability where they coordinate organised crime activity with terrorism and they bring together agencies that, that have a national interest, not just the traditional police ones, but intelligence agencies, Coast Guard and, and, and maritime agencies as well. So I think structurally they, they have the means to do it. The scale of the problem may in fact be... Uh, one of the challenges that they have and, and you're right I mean parts of Spain are, are almost indicative of, of what organised crime looks like it's sort of quite classically uh, you know Brits abroad or Irish abroad living the, the best life on the back of criminal money uh, that's something I think the Spanish are aware of there's been certainly lots of activity that I'm aware of where the Spanish have supported the National Crime Agency in finding the sort of on-the-run characters from the UK who have taken refuge in parts of Spain. So I think the Spanish have been particularly active when they are engaging with the British. I can't speak with uh, as much confidence with the Irish, but I certainly think that the Spanish have the ability to do so. But on your broader point, I mean, Europol have recognised the threat from the, from the Kennahans and again not for one second to give them any kudos but it, it shows the level of of risk that they pose when they're being individually named in the uh, in the threat assessment that was produced for uh, by Europol which comes out every four years so after four years the Kennahans have been named I think on two separate reports but they're certainly named in the last one now, for you to be named individually uh, in, a, in, a, in a report that is across the whole of the European landscape shows you the level of threat that the Canadians properly pose within Europe. So this isn't just an Irish problem, certainly not just a British problem. This is a cross-Europe problem uh, to the extent that they are being named and shamed in, uh, in these international uh, documents, which haven't been involved in some of the work around them they go through a high level of vetting and every word is checked to make sure that you know, that it's justified and can be can be published so when you were being named, you've definitely made the big leagues uh, at a European level. And that's even before we talk about the the recent uh, interdictions by the US and, and the
1: sanctions uh, activity. Exactly. And um, from recent work as well, it looked as if the Eastern Europeans have very much come on board now with Europol and Eurojust platforms between Lithuania, Estonia, etc., a recognition that yet again, based down in Spain. And maybe I'm being slightly unfair to Spain. Maybe they're geographically overwhelmed more than anything else by the amount of groups that are centered there. Um, but everybody t- seems to come together. So when the borders opened in Europe, the criminals were ready to move very quickly and to reach out and make friendships. But it seems it took law enforcement that little while longer to build that trust. It does appear to be there now in a very strong way. But the Kinnihans, as an organization in 2016 moved their kind of management structure out to Dubai. So they're out of reach again. Um, what happens in that case? And you have a country, the United Arab Emirates, that doesn't necessarily have laws that tally with ours. We don't have extradition uh, agreements with them. How do you deal with that from a policing point of view?
0: Well, it isn't just a policing problem. Then it becomes a political problem, becomes a geopolitical problem because the police alone cannot fix the the lack of a legislative framework that allows... The extradition of people or the sharing of data or the, the cooperation in law enforcement. So this becomes a properly national problem uh, where law enforcement, if this were just in the UK context, this would be flagged up to the UK Home Office. The Home Office then, working alongside the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, would engage with authorities in the UAE to say, look, there are lots of things we have a mutual interest in, trade being one of them, tourism, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. But we have this little sidebar of organized crime, and the UAE has become probably even more significant in terms of the the uh, the place where where major criminals go to. For a long time, it was known as the money laundering capital of the world, and and to a large extent probably still is. And so, it the UAE as as a as a collective recognizes that it is it has a problem on its doorsteps. The last thing it wants if it's trying to develop a name for itself in, say, tourism and international trade, is to be seen as the international hub for terror, for organised crime. So it becomes not just a policing issue. Police will have a duty to elevate the, the scale and the understanding of the threat of the problem, but it becomes then a political issue where you have to then engage uh, governments to say help us understand and develop a, a, a constructive environment, constructive framework upon which we as police can then have day-to-day conversations with law enforcement colleagues. Uh, I mean, if, if if police were to simply rock up into the police headquarters in Dubai and say, we're from you know Dublin Castle, we're from you know London, can we have a conversation with, them? It, it just doesn't work that way. You need to build those diplomatic channels, first of all, and to make sure that conversations are being taken that that government can ultimately stand over. I think that is happening. I think the challenge is always going to be criminals can move so much faster. They don't need to comply with the standard rules and regulations of decent society. Governments and law enforcement will always have to do that. And there will always be that, that lag period between recognising a problem and bringing forward a solution. I think the challenge to law enforcement is trying to shorten that lag period to the shortest possible period. I think, ironically, what the kennans have shown is that there is such a group that can come from, you know, the streets of Dublin, from street dealers in Dublin, but can become this international conglomerate of activity, of criminal activity based in Dubai. And that poses a threat not just to the UAE, but also to Europe, you know, including Ireland and the UK, and now the Americans. So they have become so successful, if that is the right term to use, that they've enabled international activity against them because they almost become a a case study in the need for there to be international cooperation. Without it, you know, some of the activity we've seen in the last couple of years probably would not have happened or not have happened as quickly as it has done.
1: And in your opinion, Roy, why did the US get involved? Because while the sanctions were only announced in April, um, the US Treasury coming to Ireland and that very powerful show of force against the Kinnahan organisation, um, but we do know that they were involved uh, in surveillance activity on them from 2017, from that famous now wedding of Daniel Kinnahan in the Burj Al Arab Hotel, where DEA documents would later show... Um, in attendance was uh, Raphael Imperiale from the the Italian Mafia. There was Ridu Taji from the the Dutch Moroccan outfit and Eden Gassinen from the Bosnian groupings, all in attendance at that wedding. And that was kind of seen as proof that this sort of European super cartel, the joining of those families had happened. The DEA are involved in looking at that. Why are the Americans so interested in the Kinnahans? Why have they come on board to such an extent
0: if you go back to 2011, uh, during the Obama administration, uh, the president signed the, uh, the presidential executive order that enabled this, this sanctions-based approach to those transnational, international, organised crime groups which pose a threat to the, both the national security, uh, the foreign policy or the economy of the United States. So, you know, those are quite broad titles. The, you know, the national security, the foreign policy or the economy of the U.S., so again, if, if the Kinnahans are and had built that relationship with other international crime groups, which may already have been under the watch of, of the US law enforcement, all they did is put themselves under the spotlight. But because they were seen to be major movers and shakers in this international uh, cartel, as you've described it, Nicola, then they became ripe for international global action. So the, again, once, once again, they've made the big leagues to be able to reach the standard I mean, if you go back to 2011, when the president signed the the first presidential orders, um, who did he include? Will he involve the the first four groups were properly recognisable, uh, infamous groups? You know, a Russian criminal group, a Japanese criminal group, a, a Mexican criminal group, and MS13, the the Salvadorian organised crime. These are big names that have international recognition. Since 2011, I think only. 13, 14 groups have been brought in under that same umbrella, and the Kinahans is simply the latest one. Ironically, they are interesting; the interest, the only one for twenty twenty two. So that shows that across the world, there is a real understanding of the scale and the threat of what the Kinahan's pose. And you know, the US can bring its its considerable investigative and political and diplomatic might to this this particular challenge. And, and again, because they become so. Uh, successful in inverted commas, the Kennings have simply brought down the house upon themselves, uh, and, and are under pressure from every different every different channel. You know, I have the UAE taking action against them and freezing some assets. You've got Europe putting them on on centre stage the US taking action against them, Irish, British activity. I mean they're they're rapidly running out of of places and friends in which to go to. And I think as Commissioner Drew Harris has said, you know, you can you can continue to run but you will not be able to hide forever. And I think that's the right attitude to take.
1: Weren't we lucky that Trump didn't rip up that little bit of legislation that Obama brought in. It must have been the only thing he didn't get his mitts on. Um, but the um, so in other words, what you're saying is it's it is their growth that has brought the US authorities on top of them and likely their links in to some of those other groupings that they were obviously buying their drugs from. Because we do know there's one point in 2019, there was a ship uh, caught up in Philadelphia with Kinnahan product on it. So they were moving. In other words, they were moving their product through the states and they were affecting the US as well.
0: It's it's a bit like the the the, the old movie of, of describing uh, Colombian drug money as a clear and present danger. Uh, in, in this, in the clear sense, a group like the Kennedys has now spread its tentacles from you know the streets of Dublin to across Europe. Uh, and and now globally, and they represent a clear and present danger uh, to to the US and applying that guideline, that principle of, you know, a threat to national security, a threat to the political stability of uh, the political interests of the US and a threat to the economy. I mean, largely um, the the common factor in, in... international operations or criminal organisations is they deal in the US dollar. It's the most stable, internationally recognised and readily transferable currency. You know, gone are the days where well the euro would be probably second, but, you know, the US dollar is becoming the, or has largely been the the international um, denomination of choice. So that allows the US to say, wait a minute, you're trading in our currency. That poses an economic risk to us because you're devaluing the, the U.S. dollar by your criminality. And that gives a very clear uh, nexus for the U.S. to get involved and say, well, you, you're just not going to do that. And then you bring the might of the U.S. against the uh, the Kinnahans and others. So, um, you know, had they, had they not put drugs into the U.S., had they not involved themselves in the U.S. currency, it's possible perhaps unlikely, but it's possible the US might have taken a, a less aggressive step. Mm. Uh, but I have to say, I mean, I applaud the, the work of, of, of the Garda, particularly in taking the lead in bringing the, the sanctions to bear. I mean, as I say, there's only around the world, only about a, a baker's dozen uh, of of such international groups on the US sanctions list that are particularly around transnational organized crime. So you've really made the big league when the US are taking an interest in you. And, you know, that's, you know, that's almost a sense of hubris where the Kennahans have grown to the point that they've they've brought the the roof down on top of themselves.
1: Now, from those uh, rewards that were offered 5 million dollars each on the heads of Christy Kennahan senior and his two sons Christopher Jr. and Daniel, Kinahan, can we read from that those rewards are looking for information uh, regarding the, their business dealings, but also them? Can we read from that that they are wanted and they are at risk of finding themselves before the courts in the US in a similar way that Joaquin El Chapo Guzman has and others have been brought across into the into the US to stand trial there?
0: I think the short answer is yes. They the the declaration of a sort of a. Um, a bounty on the heads of these three members of the Kinnehan family is a very clear declaration of intent from the U.S. authorities. Uh, and, and you know, the U.S. aren't going to put $5 million on the heads of each of the Kinnehan's just for information about their business deals. That's, of course, of interest, but ultimately the, the, the individuals pose the threat as well. You know, you can take down a, a, a structure that the Kinnehan's or another group might have been using to launder or facilitate their criminality, but unless you take down the, the leadership of the organised crime group, they can simply establish another mechanism to do so. So it's it's that sort of twin-track approach of the information, the business structures, the financial trails, the logistics operations of the groups, but also the heads of the, the actual groups themselves. There's nothing more debilitating to an organised crime group than when you metaphorically chop its head off, uh, because then people say, well, you know, I expected to go to jail if I was a, you know, a small member of a group. I expected to do my time in, you know, in prison. But hey, when the boss has been taken down, you know, the rest of us aren't safe. And it becomes quite difficult to 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 recruit the new leader because they've um, their vacancy bulletins are very hard to, to describe as having a long lifespan because you go to jail when the Americans, the Irish, the British, to, you know, put you into, in the spotlight. So uh, I think you can absolutely read that there is a... Uh, a desire to put the, the canons, uh under the justice system in any jurisdiction, whether it's the US, Ireland, or, or elsewhere. Uh, I mean, it's, it is possible um, that Interpol would have what's known as a red notice, uh, which can be flagged as uh, they are basically arrest on site. Um, some of those can be held covertly, uh, so we may not know that they exist or not. Um, some of them are published, so you know people are known to be wanted and a red notice is publicly declared. So it is possible that the Kinens have a red notice against them that effectively is an arrest on site
1: hmm. And they're obviously not going to be just wandering around Paris or anything like that. So uh, it is more than likely a, a sort of a covert and one that would be operated by law enforcement. I don't think the Kinnahans, there's going to be a tip off that they're sunning themselves on a, a beach somewhere. And, uh, you know, they're staying in such and such an apartment. They are on the run. They are hunted at the moment and they still have some financial ability to stay a step away from the law. But ultimately, and I suppose finally, where do you see this going? Where do you see it ending? And you know what is? What are the next steps that, that are going to happen?
0: Well, uh, I'm I'm usually a very positive person, and I will see I'll be positive on this. The Kinnanehs will be arrested. They will be caught. They will be detected. Um, to to paraphrase one of the old statements issued by the Provisional IRA back in the day, they they have to be lucky all the time. Law enforcement only needs to be lucky once. You just need that one piece of information that puts the Kenahans at a certain date, time, location. And if law enforcement can move at speed, they will be arrested. They will be brought to justice. They will face their time. I mean, when we're talking about El Chapo, El Chapo was probably, uh, you know, the most dangerous, the most significant drug dealer in the history of of the world. But where is he now? He's in a federal penitentiary in the United States because there was a global response Information was developed. Information may well have been obtained from his own compadres. Who thought that's this an opportunity to get rid of the boss? So I I would be very positive at some point that the Kinnahans will uh, will be arrested. Maybe not in one sweep that all three of them are taken together, but you know certainly over time because they're simply losing ground of where to run and where to hide. Um, so I think they will be arrested. I think the Kinnane name will become a a footnote in history but there will be other criminal groups because the money is so attractive to people there's so much profit that can be made uh, and then sometimes the 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 learning from what it was like to be a Kinahan can pass over to the next generation so that they become a little bit smarter a little bit less abrasive a little bit less visible I mean we could be having this conversation now If the Kinnehan's didn't do what they did in 2016 in the Regency Hotel, would we be talking about them at this point? Or would this simply be an Irish problem with a little bit of an international element? Or because they did what they did, they exposed themselves for being the threat that they truly were, which was recognised within Ireland. And, um, you know, they set off a chain of events that now has them as international pariah around the world and with a bounty on their head i mean that cannot be a very comfortable place for them to be um, and then they may swivel around for another couple of weeks months or even years but i think in due course they will be arrested they will be they will be brought to justice in some jurisdiction and they will have their time in court and that will be the end of the kenahan cartel but there will be other cartels because there's just so much money to be made in transnational mm. organized crime
1: it's certainly a, a never-ending wheel um, well Roy McComb thank you very much my pleasure you've been listening to Crime World a podcast from sundayworld.com produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me Nicola Talent. if you like the podcast and love true crime why not download the sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe